we are studying through Revelation, and if you have studied through Revelation before, then you've probably, uh, when you get to the letters to the seven churches, you've probably been exposed to the idea that the seven um, churches in Revelation represent different ages of the church. That uh, uh, the the churches correspond with with church ages throughout history. So, for instance, uh, this morning's church in uh, in Sardis represents the medieval era of the church, or what we might call the Dark Ages. In Philadelphia, next week's church will represent the Reformation era. Well, the seven churches are in fact representative. They're representative of Asia Minor. They're representative uh, in a broader way of churches throughout the Roman Empire, and to some degree, probably representative of churches in all times and all places. Uh, I personally tend to shy away from the church age theory, the church age presentation. Uh, I, I think it is uh, that we have a tendency, Bible readers and studiers sometimes have a tendency to try to read chronology into Revelation where it doesn't actually exist. Well, we, uh, we Before we got into this study, we reviewed some passages that talk about how the, uh, the timing of these events is not really yours to know, that that's in, it's, uh, God only knows, basically. And uh, so don't worry about that. Focus on what you're supposed to be focused on. But we kind of can't help ourselves. Every time we get into these passages, we start thinking that there's like this set of clues that's going to reveal exactly when it's going to happen or at least narrow it down for us. And, and I, I think the effort to turn the churches into ages of the church is one of those things. We say, well, if we can we can line this out in history then it means that you know we can identify that we're getting closer to the actual day of of the lord uh the problem with it is if you, you while you can find churches that match what's going on in the churches of revelation the reality is you can find churches in every age that match all of the churches in revelation and the churches in Revelation, as a matter of fact, were all having these experiences at the same time. And so they are representative, but they are not necessarily representative of uh, some sort of historical progression, but they're representative of what can happen in the church in general. And it's probably instructive for us that of the seven churches that are referenced here in Revelation, Five of the seven have significant problems. So if the church is sort of this mix between, uh, between the divine and the human, if the church is that mix, well, then these problems kind of indicate that the uh, human side of the church tends to uh, pop its head up maybe a little bit more often than the divine side. And so the errors of these church appear in every age of the church. They're always present. And we can kind of think of the seven churches of Revelation as maybe a bit of a, a spectrum. Uh, they are 
representative of the health, relative health of individual congregations and, and what they look like in regard to whether or not they're, they're erring on the side of divinity or erring on the side of humanity. And part of what Revelation does is it challenges the church to get back on the straight and narrow, to deal with whatever defects it has, and to understand then the role that the church plays in the grander spiritual battle. So it's not just a matter of you know whether or not you're doing a good job for you personally, but you have a mission and God is asking you to get back on mission. God is asking the church to, to get back where it needs to be. The spectrum, of course, is going to include the best and the worst churches on the spectrum. And I have to admit that studying for this week has been a little bit depressing because on that spectrum we have, you know, presumably the healthiest churches and also the church that is on death's doorstep. And guess which one we have this week? The church at Sardis is the church on death's doorstep. Uh, the next two churches on our list fall into these extremes. So Sardis is, is, is nearly dead. Uh, Philadelphia, it, things are going pretty good. It's the open door church, and we'll read about them next, next week. Sardis was a city of legend. It was an exceedingly wealthy city, even though it's not the largest city in the, on the list. It was an extremely wealthy city, but unlike, unlike uh, last week, we talked about the artisans and the trades and, and all the wealth that came from purple cloth and, and the other trades, uh, this city made nearly all of its money by plucking it out of the river. They had d gold deposits, and they collected those gold deposits, and that's where, the, that's where all that wealth comes from. Now, speaking of, of legends, you might be uh, familiar with the story of King Midas. Um, Midas was a real king. The story about him is not a real story, but Midas was a real king, and the, the, the legend about Midas basically that he rescues a satyr and uh, Dionysius rewards him, wants to reward him. And so he says, I want, you to, I want you to bless me with wealth beyond measure. And so he is given this ability that anything that he touches turns to gold. And this works out for about a minute and a half because as soon as he, he touches his his dinner, he's trying to eat dinner, he touches his dinner and it turns to gold and he can't eat it. He goes to take a drink and it turns to gold and he can't drink it. He, in some of the stories, he even touches his daughter, turns his daughter to gold. And so he returns to Dionysius and he begs that this blessing that's really a curse could be taken away from him. Dionysius tells him to go wash himself in the Pactolus River. He does this and this magic transfers from him to the river, and now everything that the river touches begins to turn to gold, and so the riverbed is filled with gold. The story, of course, is a legend. The gold is real. Gold was very rich in the Pactolus River, and the people of Sardis figured out a way to collect the gold from the river 
using uh, sheep fleeces, oddly enough, to capture little particles of gold in the sheep fleece. And so um, they become very wealthy for this. As a matter of fact, they are credited with being the first city in the world to mint gold and silver coins. And so the whole um, business of, of using uh, money as currency comes from Sardis, of all places. They were, uh, the city was built on the edge of a mountain. The Acropolis at the top of the mountain is basically protected on three sides. There are these basically 1,500-foot vertical, almost completely vertical drops. And so the city was uh, quite easy to defend, at least theoretically. But the city's reputation didn't match its reality. It was regarded as essentially impregnable. And all the citizens of the city thought that it was. And they become sort of overconfident. The reality is they were defeated by Cyrus of Persia, and a, a few hundred years later they're defeated by Alexander. Um, by the New Testament era, the city of Sardis is a shadow of its former self. It's just, it's just not what it used to be. But they're still kind of nursing the glory days and talking about what a great city, what a great city they are. The reality is that in other parts of the kingdom, the people of Sardis were regarded as kind of soft. They, had, uh, they were old money. <laughs> they had a lot of family wealth from this collection of gold. Uh, very few people in Sardis had actually worked for the wealth that they had. And so they were considered kind of soft and, and a little bit too given to, to pleasure and comfort. And that's where we come into Revelation chapter 3, the first two verses. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars of God, or the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. That's kind of interesting. Other like, unlike the other uh, letters to the other churches where the Lord begins with some kind of positive affirmation and then gets into the critique, he completely skips the positive affirmation here. <laughs> Goes right to uh, people think that you're alive, but you're really dead. Sardis, in effect, had a zombie church. They have the outward appearance of being alive, they have activity, they have membership, but they're really dead. And the Lord kind of takes their local history and uses it as an illustration for the church to understand what's going on. This is a once great city that really doesn't live up to its reputation. It's really dead. This reality doesn't match the reputation. The church has members. It has movement. It has works. On the surface, it certainly seems to be living. But the Lord says your work is incomplete. In other words, you have left the mission. You're still busy, 
you're just not doing the work that I called you to do. The mission is making disciples of Jesus. And this is kind of a lesson for us, for the church in every age. It doesn't really matter what numbers you have. It doesn't matter what status you have in your society. It doesn't even really matter what works you're involved in. Without that mission, without making disciples, the church is effectively dead. So he continues, remember, therefore, that you what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So the mission of the church at Sardis is overcome by complacency and pride. And there's a story from history about how the city of Sardis was defeated in spite of its impregnable fortress. And it, it goes like this. Um, the, the, the Persians arrive there around Sardis, and they do, in fact, find the city extremely difficult to breach. And so they are camped out. Cyrus has his forces camped out all the way around the city, and they're just waiting for an opportunity. They're trying to figure out this problem. Well, a, uh, a guard, a watchman, on the back wall of the city where there were very few watchmen because they didn't think anybody could, could get over those walls, fell asleep on duty. And when he fell asleep, he nodded his head and his helmet fell off his head and dropped down the wall to the mountainside below. Well, apparently not wanting to get into more trouble, he exits the city through a secret doorway and shimmies down a crevice and retrieves his helmet and climbs back up. Well, unbeknownst to him, all of this is observed by Cyrus's forces. And so Cyrus moves the bulk of his army around to the front of the city, concentrates his forces at the front of the city, and so the city moves all of their forces to the front, and Cyrus's commandos work their way up through this crevice and enter the city through the secret door, allow their comrades into the city, and eventually the city is completely uh, overtaken. To make matters worse, the people of Sardis didn't seem to learn anything from that history. When Alexander the Great came along, he did exactly the same thing. The Lord picks up on this story and uses it to illustrate what's happening in the church. They have fallen asleep. Well, what is it exactly that Jesus is referring to? We don't have a lot to go on from the text, but we do have some archaeological clues about what was happening in the city of Sardis, and we do understand at this point the context of the challenges that are faced by these churches in, uh, in Asia Minor. One of the things we need to understand is that Sardis had a very large Jewish community. It was one of the first Jewish communities in Asia Minor. As a matter of fact, they had the largest synagogue outside of Palestine. The ruins of it today are still uh, quite impressive. This is likely where Christianity in Sardis begins. That was a pretty typical scenario for Christianity to begin in the synagogue and then sort of be birthed from there. What's unusual about this particular synagogue is it's built right in the center of town. As a matter of fact, it's just across 
from the Greek gymnasium, where all kinds of things would happen that uh, any good Jewish person should object to. It's right there in the center of town. Normally these synagogues, when a city had a synagogue, it would be built on the outskirts of town, uh, not in the middle of all that uh, uh, Greek idol worship and all the other things that were going on. There are columns in the synagogue, and on those columns, the people of the synagogue carved their names. What's interesting is they carved their names in Greek rather than in Hebrew. Now, if you understand how important heritage is to the Jewish people, it's quite shocking to find that they would record their names in Greek. What it suggests to us is that they have become very much more Greek, more Hellenized, if you will, uh, than, than perhaps Jewish. In the marketplace in Sardis, we find stalls that are marked with symbols that are pagan, that are Jewish, and sometimes that are Christian. And so you've got all these people in the marketplace. Now, these symbols here are probably from a later era, but these symbols exist in the marketplace indicating kind of what your particular disposition is. Now, we look at that situation and we think, that's pretty awesome. Compared to these other towns where the Christians are completely excluded from the marketplace, how awesome is it that the town has sort of accepted them and embraced them into the marketplace? And everybody just sort of flying their flag saying, this is, this is what I am about. You can come shop here, shop from the Christians. Here we are. Think, what? How, how great is that that they have that kind of status, that they've got inroads into the culture, that they're respected by the people? Wouldn't that be a great platform for the gospel? Here's a problem. The integration of Christianity into the culture comes at a very steep cost. Because in Roman culture, you were completely free to worship any god that you wanted as long as you were prepared to acknowledge that your god is one of the gods and that your god is no more powerful than the most powerful of our gods. What, would you, what you would have to surrender to the culture in order for your message to be received by the culture effectively invalidates your message. We've already discussed one of the revelation principles is that our king and our kingdom are eternal. And Jesus, of course, says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. These are very exclusive statements. We, in today's church, we have to pay attention to what's going on here. Because for a long time, I, I think we've had this notion that we're going to accomplish our mission by fitting into the culture around us and finding those kind of inroads into it. We say, well, you know, even the Apostle Paul said, I'll be all things to all people. But here's the thing. The Apostle Paul is ready to reshape his personality 
in order to accomplish the mission. The one thing he cannot reshape is the gospel itself. As soon as you reshape the gospel, you've lost everything. These people have found acceptance. We think that's a good thing, but Jesus looks at it and he says, this is a recipe for a dead church. You see, coexistence is the highest value of the empire. The empire wants us to coexist. Not just the Roman Empire, any empire. You have been challenged on a regular basis by culture to embrace principles of coexistence. Coexistence means that the citizens get along, particularly with the voice of the empire. It means that no one has any greater claim to moral authority than anybody else. This is why Christianity is so often at odds with the world. Christianity, this message that there is one God and there is one way to reach that God. We, the culture says, can coexist peacefully as long as every view out there is regarded as equally valid. But then, of course, what that means is that if a view is untrue, it is equally valid as a view that is true. Logically, this means that there is no moral truth at all. And this is the problem with coexistence. It is merely code for futility and chaos. Coexistence says you can believe whatever as long as your belief doesn't invalidate anybody else's belief. I'm sorry, sometimes the truth invalidates a lie. That's the reality. The exclusive claims of the Christian faith are a problem for this system of coexistence. And of course, there are other beliefs out there that are also arguing that they have moral authority. So who mediates these arguments within the empire? The empire does. The empire steps up to the plate and decides what is true, what is moral authority. It assigns itself responsibility for that. And so what has happened in our nation? Well, the church was invited to endorse the nation and to be a participant in the culture. And all is well for a while because the culture is largely Christian and the culture and its institutions and organizations offer a certain deference to the church and to church people and to church leaders. But then somebody starts to complain that they don't believe this stuff. And so they shouldn't have to hear it if they don't want to. Then what does the message of the empire become? The empire starts to say, you can believe whatever you want, just don't express it in public. Check your faith at the door. When you enter our institutions, when you're participating in our organizations, just keep it to yourself. And then, suddenly, 
the church and its members and its leaders are not offered deference anymore. But Christians kind of go along to get along. We still want to have our place in the culture, and so we, we acquiesce. And as the empire continues to choose between competing social views and philosophies, it begins at some point to select its own moral code, its own religious system, until finally what you believe privately is held to be a violation of that code, is held to be hateful and ignorant. And ultimately, you will be disenfranchised. You will be punished, not only for not believing what the culture says is true, but for not endorsing what the culture says is true. But we really want to be loved. We really want the world to accept us. We really want to be embraced by the culture, and that's so invigorating. And we imagine what we could do for the gospel if we had a forum like that where people embraced us and cared about us and were listening to us. And what we forget is that the empire is naturally the enemy of the kingdom of God. And it really doesn't matter what political party or what nation or what form of government we're talking about. The empire is the natural enemy of the kingdom of God. Gaining acceptance in the empire will ultimately and always require that we abandon the distinctive of the kingdom. The distinctiveness of the kingdom is the preeminent value of living churches. This is what our core values here are about. When we say we love God, we love others, we seek the kingdom, we make disciples, what are we saying? We're saying we live by a completely different set of standards. Our values are completely different than the culture, the nation, the empire around us. Jesus says to this church, remember what you've received. Get back to the core of the message. Hold fast to that. Repent. In other words, this body, he says, is, is, is dead, but it's still twitching. It's only mostly dead. And we know from the movies that mostly dead is a little bit alive. Gather up, he says, gather up what's left. Cultivate that life. Repent and come back. God's people are intended to be set apart. They're intended to be a counterculture. They're intended to offer something different. A lot of times I think maybe we we understand that we need to make inroads for the sake of our mission. But maybe what we don't understand is that those inroads are not so that we can be loved by the world, but so that we can help the world learn to love Jesus. First John chapter 2 says, do, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its 
and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, I know sometimes we read passages like that, and, and I, I think we probably misunderstand what those passages mean by, by world. It sort of reinforces this notion that we have that, that the objective of the Christian life is, is, to, is to shut out the world and just wait for Jesus to come so that we can escape this world and have a disembodied existence floating around on clouds somewhere. That's not, the, that's not the fate to which we are called. We have to remember that God so loved the world that he sent his son. And so when we talk about world in this passage, we're not talking about the world as God created it or the world as God sees it. We're talking about the world in terms of the empire, what man has done to it. We're talking about what comes from the world as opposed to what comes from the Father. And this is important. This is really important to me because I really, really, really love the world. I love what God did here. He's really good at it. I love the endless diversity of his creation. I love the landscapes. From, from the sea to the desert, from the forest to the jungle, from the mountains to the plains, there's endless diversity that God has created for us. There's beauty and there's wonder. There's plant life, grass and trees and bushes. Amazing. Animals, so many different animals. So much wonder in that, from, from my pets and livestock to, to the great predators of the earth, to the graceful deer that we see running around the fields here. I even get excited still going outside at night and seeing the fireflies. Is there, is there anybody here who thinks that God didn't do that for us? You just imagine Jesus talking to his father saying, hey, we're going to make a bug with a butt that lights up. The people will love it. I love this world, and I love the people in it. They're extraordinary. You ever think about the fact that everybody in this room and everybody you've ever met is a unique personality? How incredible is that? Of all the billions of people that have ever existed on this planet, no two are exactly alike. They're all themselves. They're all an individual. And their creativity, their innovation, the way that human beings address a problem and come up with a solution, sometimes a solution that changes everything. That's remarkable. And the architecture and the art and our capacity to create beauty, our capacity to to create laughter, to write a joke that makes everybody experience joy, to love, to be part of a family, to have friends and companions, to have children, to have a lover. Everything about this life is remarkable and miraculous to me. And why not? The world was created for us and we were created for it. 
God didn't make a mistake with any of that. He said it was good. But the other thing that we have to understand, as much as we love the world, we cannot possibly love what humanity has done with it. We can't love that this world is hopelessly corrupted by evil. See, the living church is a counterculture in this. We are loving the world through the lens of God's intent and God's purpose. We love this life because it's a life that God has given us. But we don't love the creation more than the Creator. When the church presents itself as just another part of the world, a part of the empire, presenting perhaps a more moralized version of what the empire values, it is, in fact, a dead church already. Regardless of how much activity, regardless of whether it's a big church or a small church, regardless of what programs it offers, regardless of how much influence or what its reputation is in the community. Understand this, at present, in our empire, truth is whatever you want it to be. Except when the empire tells you what it is. And what is the empire telling us? Men are women, and women are men, and pride is a virtue, and drag queens are role models, and the murder of infants is a social justice, and promiscuity is healthy, and lust is entertainment, and promiscuity is liberty, and drunkenness is celebration, and intoxication is recreation, and prosperity is God, and humanity is a commodity. In short, there is nothing, nothing that Jesus has created that the world, the empire, is not prepared to twist and distort and hand back to you as the opposite of what God intended it to be. And so Revelation continues in, in verse 4, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A white robe is a call to be uncorrupted by the world. Now, I'm going to tell you, I have in my closet at this moment probably 15 or 20 Carhartt t-shirts. That's a lot of Carhartt t-shirts. Carhartt t-shirts are my favorite shirt. If you see me any day but Sunday, I'll probably be wearing one. But I don't need 15 or 20 of them. Why do I have 15 or 20 of them? Because the huge majority of them have spots and stains and blemishes. And why do the huge majority of them have spots and stains and blemishes? Because every time I'm wearing a new one that's cleaned, a job comes up, that requires me to do something messy. 
the intelligent thing to do would be to go put on one of the many dirty Carhartt shirts hanging in my closet already. But you know what I do? I tell myself, I'm just going to be really careful. I don't know about you, but really careful is a losing proposition for me. This almost never works. Let me tell you something. I can be pretty good sometimes. I'm, I'm a decent painter. I don't like painting, but I, I can paint reasonably well. I have cut in entire rooms with no tarps, no drops of paint on the floor. Guess where all the paint drops end up? On my new Carhartt t-shirt. I think we as Christians sometimes are imagining that we can engage in what the world values. We'll just be really careful about it. And it doesn't work. My Carhartt t-shirts at least have the advantage of being all darkly colored. Jesus says these will be dressed in white robes. There's nowhere that they're going to be able to go that if they rub up against the darkness, rub up against the filth, it's not going to rub off on them. I think that's excessive. It's not my standard. It's Christ's standard. Christ says if your right hand causes you to sin, lop it off. Yeah, just an illustration. I don't want any of you coming back next week and your hand cut off. But it's a vivid illustration, isn't it? He says, your name will never be blotted out. This would have meant a lot to the people. Uh, In these cities, in these cities, there's a registrar of all the citizens of the city. And if you were uh, condemned to die or about to be condemned to die, the Romans were really big on their reputation. They did not like executing citizens. So you know what they'd do if they needed to execute a citizen? They'd blot their name out from the registry. You're no longer a citizen. Our record's still perfect. Jesus says, in my book of life, you be faithful to me, you'll n- your name will never be blotted out. You won't lose your life. You won't lose your citizenship. Now, a lot of the things that I've talked about this morning or I've made veiled references to, the things that are most broken about our culture right now, the things that, that we are daily shocked that, that how are we even considering these things that just a few years ago everybody knew was nonsense. The reality is, probably for a lot of these things, in a few years everybody will know they're nonsense again. Because the worst sins in this world have a shelf life. They don't work out well for people. When you deny the truth in order to pursue a lie, eventually the lie begins to break down and things fall apart. The question that I have is this. How much damage will the empire do before good people wake up to what's happening? My other question, 
when it's all said and done, when all the dust settles, will the church have been a light in the darkness or will it be just another flavor of the darkness? See, the world doesn't know it and the world doesn't even think it wants it, but the world desperately needs us right now to stand up for the truth and speak the things of God into the culture, even if it means we will not be loved and we will not be accepted and we will not be embraced. We have to stand apart, sanctified, set apart for the service of the kingdom because one day everyone will recognize that Jesus was right. And we don't want any of them coming to us and saying, how come you didn't tell me?